0: Sunday morning, time for the great outdoors with Charlie Potter, brought to you by the all-new Chevy Silverado and ChevyDriveChicago.com on Chicago's very own 720 WGN. Good morning. Welcome to the Great Outdoors Show. Charlie Potter, your host here on WGN Radio, and thank you so much for joining me this morning as we march our way into April. Pretty exciting. Spring is here. I, uh, when spring comes, the first thing I think about is birds because it's the time of the year when hundreds of millions of birds are on the move. Chicago has an interesting story, actually, about birds that the Field Museum and the Tribune worked on together, or actually the Tribune worked on the story, the Field Museum's done the research, and it it indicates that it's possible that birds in the Chicago area are nesting up to a month earlier than they did a century ago, according to the Field Museum. This This is remarkable, and it has all kinds of implications, and may also help explain some of the things that are going on with bird populations. But uh, according to the Field Museum, they've been able to look at eggs that were collected, some dating back to the 1880s, 72 bird species, and on average, a number of bird species are laying eggs 25 days earlier than they did 100 years ago. Uh, It's really hard to believe that, but what's going on is they've been able to extract from the eggshells enough information to tell them what was taking place and when these birds were nesting eggs from a cedar waxwing dating back to 1897 were collected near Glencoe at the time uh, according to the information on the eggs they were built in a uh, in a nest in an oak tree robin eggs were collected from 1901 found in a calumet area in a nest made of mud and grass and discovered in a shrub oak shrub oak the collection of eggs often they were blown out long ago their insides were blown out they date back to the 1870s when in fact ornithologists ornithologists, and and hobbyists of all ages were trying to get uh, their hands on nests to study birds eventually the collection of eggs was was outlawed because of course if you take the eggs out of the nest, you're, you're pretty much destroying the future of that species' ability to reproduce. But anyway, the interesting story is there appears to be very little doubt that many species of birds are nesting earlier in the Chicago area than they used to, by used to being 100 years ago. So how does this relate to maybe a broader picture? And how does it maybe help explain some of the issues taking place in other areas today with with massive bird population declines. And let me just turn for a moment to the Pintail. The Northern Pintail is was once the second most populous species of ducks in North America. And today its populations are only about 20 to 25% of what they were even 50 years ago. So there's been a lot of discussion as to what could be happening. Pintail are a notoriously early nesting bird species, duck species. They're among the first species to arrive on the prairies and set up house and make nests. The problem is with the advent of winter wheat. There's a lot of grass on the, a lot of cover on the prairie landscape that to a pintail duck flying north looks just a perfect place to nest. It's short stubble. Uh, it's it is growing. It's short, as I said a moment ago, and that's the kind of cover that a pintail ideally has always sought out since evolution. So they nest in the short winter wheat, and along comes the tractor, and that's the end of that nest. Or they nest in the margins around wetlands, which they do prolifically, very early when there is very little cover, and they are faced with a predator community that is ready to just savage their nests. First of all, they're the earliest nesting birds, so they provide early food to predators coming out of hibernation. Secondly, the cover is lousy, so you've got very short grass, very open areas, easy for ravens and hawks and to see them from the air, and, and also easy for skunks and, and raccoons uh, to see them on the ground. So if the pintail duck, and we don't have information on this that I'm aware of, but per example, the pintail duck is doing on the prairies what birds appear to be doing in northeastern Illinois, and therefore we have to assume in a broader area, and that is trying to nest earlier. Then that's even worse news, because the grasses in the prairies have even had that much less time to grow. So it would seem that this work being done by the Field Museum it could be tremendously enlightening for us to understand the evolution of birds. And it could help explain why bird populations are collapsing, because if you're nesting earlier, the cover just isn't as good. It's not as though um, the plants and trees and grasses are growing earlier, they're not. It appears as though maybe birds are just nesting earlier. And on the, on the flip side of it, most people involved in the world of agriculture taking out changes in genetics and crops are finding that they're actually planting later than they used to. And certainly there are an awful lot of gardeners in this part of the world, hobby gardeners, professional gardeners, who would offer that the planting season seems to be actually getting later and that our springs are lasting longer and are colder. So how does that mix with the field museum finding that, gee whiz, birds appear to be nesting earlier. So you have You have farmers and agronomists saying they're planting later, and you have birds nesting earlier. That doesn't make a lot of sense, and yet it could help explain why they're in decline, and nobody knows why they're nesting earlier, but it does seem to be a fact that that they are nesting earlier. Also, ground-nesting birds, if this is a more wide-based region of nesting earlier, which I think you We don't know, but let's just make that assumption for a moment. It might explain why ground nesting birds, turkeys, quail, pheasants also are doing poorly because the same thing that applies to songbirds and to ducks that nest on the ground is applying to to those species. So maybe we have birds just simply nesting earlier into worse habit, habitat conditions. It's a really interesting subject. We don't have a lot of answers, but one of the things the Field Museum does so well is they provide us with snippets of history through science, and then how is that relevant to today. And the work for the, from the Field Museum on, on bird nests from the collection of eggs done over 100 years ago is really is really very very groundbreaking, and frankly, uh, leads us to a lot of thought. Before I go to the break, I simply want to mention that the National Rifle Association has joined a suit that is being filed against the the government because, once again, they are trying to um, to restrict access to public lands. So the the lawsuit was filed recently, and it is involving a number of organizations that um, are working to try to reduce uh the impact of what looks like the effort by the current administration to reduce hunting on public lands so the national rifle association uh has joined uh, with the safari club the sportsman's alliance foundation the rocky mountain Felt. Mountain Elf Foundation, and a whole host of others in filing a motion to intervene and dismiss a lawsuit challenging the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service decision um, to reduce hunting opportunities uh, on public lands. And so we're going to follow that closely, but the effort to reduce hunting opportunities on public lands is is really not the direction we ought to be going in. I'll be back in just a moment, and when I do, uh, there's a fascinating article recently about how the oceans might be used to try to pull carbon out of the air and what that means for the future of, of some of the subjects taking place with uh, with discussion around uh, climate change. Now listen to Charlie Potter on the Outdoor Voice of Chicago and America, 720 WGN, and first a message from our longtime sponsors, the Northwest Indiana and Chicagoland Chevrolet dealers. In the field, hunters need to be alert. Sense the environment around them and know exactly where they are. Communicate seamlessly with their dogs. And when it comes to pickup trucks, you want the same qualities. The all-new Chevy Silverado comes with an available 4G Wi-Fi hotspot for seamless communication. It's designed to handle the toughest loads with advanced trailering technology. Tough on the road and off. And the all-new design gives you more cargo space than the competition. Chevy Silverado is the most dependable, longest-lasting, full-size pickup on the road. Plus, there's never been a better time to see your local Chevy dealer about the big fix lease. It's an amazing lease deal that can lower your monthly payments and give you more Chevy, all for less money. That's a treasure hunt. So head to your Chicagoland and Northwest Indiana Chevy dealer or go to ChevyDriveChicago.com and see why Chevy is the number one best-selling brand in Chicagoland, now eight years running. It's Charlie Potter and the Great Outdoors on Chicago's very own 720 WGN. Welcome back to the Great Outdoors show, Charlie Potter, your host here on WGN Radio. Thank you so much for being with me, and if you're just joining me, I'm going to talk about oceans. And the headline in the Wall Street Journal was Using the Ocean's Power to Fight Climate Change. This is a relatively new topic. Those people in the inside baseball world of climate change and and carbon have been working on this for a long time. The rest of us, uh, it's a very interesting subject, which appears to be gaining steam, um, frankly, around the world. So the reality is the ocean's cover about 70% of the surface of the world. Oceans, grasslands, and forests are the best carbon sinks there are. For, I mean, grasslands, I talk frequently about, would be fabulous carbon sinks because their roots go so deep into the ground, they take carbon out of the air, they sequester it deep into the ground, and it, it occurs every year. So the loss of our grasslands across our prairies and grasslands across north america ha- has been significant. We all know what's happening with the amazon and the loss of those forests, but the oceans appear maybe to be a place where we can make some progress in neutralizing the impact of carbon. And before many of you say, "Oh my goodness, we're going to have a conversation about climate change and global warming." No, as you know, I I simply try to provide information and and in providing information, I, um, I really just want to be able to, to let you decide what it is that you would um, like to do with it. I'm not taking sides here. I'm not saying climate change is, is going to end the world tomorrow, and I'm not saying the other side that it's not real at all. I'm simply passing on what, it, what in this case is some really interesting discussions. So the oceans have a tremendous ability to sequester carbon. With 70% of the world being covered by water and with oceans being deep, it appears that there actually might be a way for the oceans to, um, to, to reduce the amount of carbon. So there are a lot of people working on it, a lot of governments, a lot of venture capital money. Uh, but some of the most interesting are the planning of seaweed and seaweed cultivation. Kelp is, is an absolutely fabulous way to reduce carbon loads. Car- kelp absorbs carbon, and as kelp grows larger and larger, as the plants go larger, they become heavy, and then they sink, and they go to the bottom of the ocean's floor, and they can stay there for a long time, like a thousand years. So some researchers believe that if we had large-scale kelp farms, we could take significant amount of carbon out of the air, have it sequestered by the kelp, which would then sink to the bottom of the ocean, which is a and a regenerative process because every year or every few years the kelp is going to going to grow again and, and the process is going to be repeated. Also seaweed which is a, a form of kelp. Um, seaweed farms op- operate the same way it's just it's just a sort of a different form but but perhaps the most promising is kelp to take carbon out of the air. Also a really interesting approach is creating the ability to take carbon out of the air and pump it underground, deep underground, where the carbon would stay theoretically in perpetuity, which as I like to say is a long time. And, and then that carbon eventually becomes rock. So if there's a possibility that on a more than small scale, we could have processing plants that essentially take carbon out of the air and put it deep in the ground. Those two elements, those two ideas, are sort of leading the way in a revolution of how can we reduce carbon. I would offer that we also might just want to look at something very simple. Plant a lot more grass. We know that grasslands are vitally important to wildlife, birds in particular. The loss of our grasslands across the United States and southern Canada uh, is is absolutely tragic. Of course, Illinois was the prairie state. We didn't have a lot of trees. We had millions of acres of grass. Today, we we have less than one quarter of 1% of the native prairie left in the state. That's right, less than one quarter of 1% is left. We have a lot of area in Illinois that's not very productive for agriculture. The agriculture is heavily subsidized that could grow, grow grass. That is true across the entire country from the Appalachians to the Rockies and from the south all the way up to central Canada. I'm not talking about a mon- returning to a monoculture of grass. That, that certainly would not work as we're the breadbasket of the world. But there's a lot of marginal land that could come out of production that we're paying crop subsidies on, we're paying crop insurance on, that could be planted to grass and could then be used for hay, all kinds of things. But it would sequester carbon on a, on a very big scale. And also, also it would provide unbelievable habitat for nesting birds, and it would do something else. It would slow down soil erosion and it would slow down flooding. So when you take the societal costs and put them together of flooding, soil erosion, government subsidies for poor quality farmland that's being farmed, and you take those three things together and you say, if we just planted grass on those those lands we would reduce flooding, we would improve soil erosion by minimizing it, therefore improving water quality to be less turbidity, which would be great for fish. And we'd be paying a lot less subsidies through direct payments or or crop insurance payments. Planting grass is a win. So this whole discussion about carbon is a great one because there's not just one answer and there are a lot of bright people working on it. And I would imagine in the coming years, we're gonna talk a lot about this, but it is encouraging. This is not the end of the world by any means. There are things that we can do, and the alarmists who say it is the end of the world, I will say, I don't think you're right at all. We're going to have climate change. It's been changing for a long time. Maybe it's changing a lot faster, but never count out our ability to come up with with pretty creative ways to deal with it. I think that is part of where the future is going. Thanks so much for listening to me this morning. I'll be back next week with much more on the great outdoors, and for the first week in April, I hope it's a great one for you. This is Charlie Potter in the Outdoor Voices Chicago and America, 720 WGN.